0: Here we go. Episode 25. Welcome, everybody. I sit here today basking in the glow of summer break. That's right. It's not just the students that get a little break. It's the teachers. So right now I'm going into my fourth year of teaching and I actually used to be embarrassed that I get a summer break. Got to admit it. Hate to admit it. But it's true. I thought a summer break I'm going to tell my other adult friends with professions that, yeah, mid-June, I just go on break, and then I return in mid-August. And before I had a kid, before I had a baby in my life to take care of every day, which is truly the most challenging job of all time, there was a little bit of guilt, just a little bit of guilt, that I actually did have summer break. Now, all teachers know you need it. Any teacher listening to this podcast right now knows you absolutely need it or else it might be physically and emotionally impossible to do the job. If there was no summer break, no real winter break, spring break, all the breaks we luckily get, the job might be too difficult. So I guess that's a theory, but this is a long one and it's well-deserved. Let me just do the old self-pat on the back. It's well-deserved. We all work very hard and this is a chance to... Exhale a little bit, detach a little bit, clear the mind a little bit. However, it raises a couple of questions. Number one, why? Why does the school calendar look this way? And most people jump up and say, I got the answer. It's the agrarian calendar. Because back in the day when the U.S. school schedules were set up, kids had to help their families with crops and harvesting. And most people go, okay, I get it. That makes sense. They can't be in school. They have to be helping their families on the farms with crops and harvesting. Yet, that is being debunked. PBS put out a story that says kids in agricultural areas were most needed in the spring when most crops had to be planted and in the fall when crops were harvested and sold. So historically, many attended school in the summer when there was comparatively less need for them on the farm. Hmm. They researched this. And then what about the urban schools? Listen to this. In 1842, the year was 1842, New York City schools were open 248 days a year. Nowadays, schools are open about 180 days per year. So it's dramatically different. So there's a ton of reasons why we get this long break. Uh, a lot of people say you got to give teachers time to train, give kids a break, let them rest of their minds. But then... The worry is that kids will come back after a summer slide and show that they lost a lot of the knowledge. And they're not only rusty, but it takes a while to get back into the groove, and they forgot a lot about what they learned. We all know that. When you get out of the rhythm of something, it's tough to get back on track. Well, that's August, September, and even into October. In many schools, kids take a little while to heat up. So do some teachers, I guess. So what would be the perfect schedule? I don't really know. But what are the origins of why we have this long-ass summer break? It's not exactly the farming world. It was actually the urban communities said it's too damn hot to be indoors in the hot summer months. So wealthy and eventually middle-class urbanites, they made plans to flee the city's heat. A lot of people still do that. Flee the heat. And that became the logical time to suspend school. That's in the cities. It's different on the farms. There's different environments all over the country. So there was a big negotiation, and I guess by the late 19th century, school reformers started pushing for a standard schedule across urban and rural areas, rural, rural juror. So a compromise was struck, creating this modern school calendar. And now I sit here today as my baby is napping, speaking into a microphone, wondering what's harder, the profession teaching or or taking care of a seven-month-old from the moment she wakes up to the moment she goes to sleep. I guess this is my way of saying, I'm not getting a summer break, damn it. So I guess the embarrassment of telling my other adult friends with year-long jobs, and I should say I have a year-long job too, I don't want to devalue the profession because people know it's very hard, incredibly hard, incredibly rewarding, fulfilling, all the many ways they describe teaching. They go, yeah, the compensation's not great, but you'll feel like you're doing something good for the community, something good for the world. Anybody who gets into it, the only way to survive is to be in it for the right reasons. If you entered the world of education and you said, this is my scheme to get rich, you'll be out of it in a year or two. Or if you thought, I'm just in it for the breaks. I love the schedule so much. It still would be too difficult. Those sentimental reasons why people get into this, that's really the truth. You got to love that. And oh yeah, the icing on the cake is the summer break. Did that just become a slogan? Do we need to make t-shirts? The icing on the cake is the summer break. Do parents even like summer break? Not to say school is just simply daycare. Public school is free daycare. But the parents have to take over? I know it's a great time to plan vacations to Yosemite, Tahoe, and beyond, but really, do parents look at this schedule and go, God, maybe just like a few weeks or a month? I think it could be tweaked. I'm not going to act like I have all the answers, but I think it could be tweaked a little bit. Okay, that's a long intro, but good to have you with me today. I was thinking about how we communicate nowadays. How do we communicate? If you're thinking about a family member and you want to say hi, or you're thinking about a friend, and you want to say hi, a lot of people aren't going to pick up the phone and dial a number. Actually, we don't dial phone numbers anymore. We just tap the name on the touchscreen. Most of us don't even know the actual phone numbers of our friends. Back in the day, we remember the landline numbers, you had to memorize it, but right now, I don't know anybody's phone number, you just tap the name. But we're not even doing that. We're not even tapping the name for a conversation. We're texting. Do you hear the lawnmower outside of the window right now? Is that just me? Is it coming across? I don't know. But phone conversations, almost extinct. Still from time to time, I guess you gotta. But we text. For the most part, we text and text and text. And at times, we don't even text with words. We text with emojis. There's a lot of emojis to describe what we're doing at all times. I'm guilty of it. I love the good old-fashioned emoji. Thank you, or just hands together. Love ya, heart. All the many facial expressions we have on that yellow smiley face. Wink, drooling, pissed off, crying, laughing, sweating, confused. It can all be conveyed through the world of emojis. I like it. I don't know why. I feel like my brain has been rewired to think that I'm actually communicating with people by tapping a face of an emoji winking. Hey, there you go. Now we're in touch. There's a winking yellow face for you. But even worse now, even worse, even more dismissive, is if you receive a text, you can just click like. You can like keep your finger on the phone for a moment, and then you get all these options. Did you love what you just received? Did you like it? Did you laugh? Well, then you could tap ha ha. Are you excited about it? Tap an exclamation point. How insane is that shit? Somebody could text you actual thoughts or feelings, and all you do is hold your finger against the screen, tap like, and a thumb pops up. That's what the person on the other end gets, a little it took less than a second out of your life to respond. That's not really a response. I'm conflicted about those, because do I do them? Yeah. So I don't want to be a hypocrite, but really, we should stop that. At least text back some words. We're so far past phone conversations, but at least we should text words to one another, right? Right. I read that Americans text 45% more than any other country in the world. Should I pontificate on that? No. But the truth is, we text too much. And it makes us feel like we're in touch with people. And even worse, here's the worst thing. I tap that microphone on the iPhone. I tap the microphone and then I talk into my phone for the text. What if the person on the other end is also doing that? Why are we refusing to talk to each other? So if I'm meeting a friend for lunch, I would tap the mic and say, let's meet at 1.30 p.m. at Sonoma Taco Shop. And then, of course, you talk, it types, shows up, send. The other person on the other end might tap their microphone and say, sounds good, but I might be a little late. Doot, 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 doot. It's like a ping pong match. We're both talking into our phones, but we refuse to talk to each other with the phone. Does this make sense? It's weird. I guess we're convinced that this is faster communication and we're so busy with the amount of things we all have in our lives. We're so busy. We can't waste time with our communication. We got to just boom, send the emoji, boom, tap that you like it or talking to your phone without talking to the human. And then when you actually get to that lunch at Sonoma Taco Shop, phones better be on the table and nobody better be talking to each other. Phones on the table, no eye contact, just the sound of tortilla chips crunching as two quiet people are at lunch together okay that's twilight zone status it's not that bad hopefully but i do notice that if i give my kids my students a little free time at the end of class like a minute the room is silent everybody's just on their phone that's eerie back in my day back in the 90s if a teacher gave us a moment to unwind a moment to chill out the room would erupt into commotion it's the opposite today rooms go quiet Everybody gets back on the Snapchat. Everybody gets back on the Instagram, back onto the tweet, tweet, tweet. Actually, not so much Twitter. High schoolers aren't tweeting. I saw a statistic that only about 9% of Americans are active on Twitter, actually tweet. Only about 8 or 9% of Americans. So when we see a tweet go viral and get all these likes and retweets, and we go, oh yeah, that's a reflection of how people in America feel, it's not true. It's not true. We've allowed social media to represent the masses, when really, it's a smaller percentage than you think of people actually participating. It's not to say people don't look at Twitter for news, but the actual people tweeting 8 or 9% of America. That's a low number. I got stats today. I'm ready for you. I'm stat guy. I haven't even given you my best stats today. My best stats are still to come. You got me? Okay, here's really what I want to talk about today. I just finished Aziz Ansari's book, Modern Romance." It's not a joke. Aziz Ansari actually wrote a book titled "Modern Romance." I ordered it, soft cover, paperback for about 12 bucks on Amazon Prime. That is totally unnecessary information. I just want to let you know. if you're picturing, is it hardcover, how much did that book cost, Josh? Yeah, I think 11 or 12 bucks, soft cover, paperback. Amazon Prime. If you don't have Amazon Prime, what are you doing? What are you doing? Come on. And I thought it would be pretty good, just because I feel the need to read every comedian's book. This one was awful. Hey, what a surprise. I'm criticizing a book. But it had nothing to really do with Aziz. He teamed up with other researchers to really discuss modern love. So there were a few interesting aspects, but for the most part, it was really a dull boring, even dense book. Not a lot of comedy. He was going for some jokes here and there, but really not funny. I wanted an Aziz memoir. I want to know about his life. By the way, when you really think about it, couldn't anybody write a great memoir? Not saying you need the writing skills, but if you think of anybody's life, if they pick the 10 best stories or a few traumas that they've been through, a few controversies, a few conflicts, and you had a ghostwriter piecing it all together in a nice smooth transitional book... Wouldn't it be pretty good? I have realized that I don't just need celebrities' memoirs. I like the Average Joe's memoirs. I like reading memoirs about people I've never even heard of. From the Glass Castle to the Hillbilly Elegy. That's my genre, folks. That's my genre. Memoir. Not even celebrity memoir. But going back to Aziz, not a memoir at all. Just a study on how people date today. But the most fascinating part of it was when he initially said that his own parents, the Ansari's, We're an arranged marriage in India. So here's how it works. Aziz's dad says, I'm ready. He tells his own parents, I'm ready to get married, ready to get hitched. And they brought him three options. One, Aziz's dad says, too short. The other, he says, too tall. The third, just perfect. It's like a children's book. Just perfect. And we're just talking about how they look physically. He said, that'll do. And then they get married It is that simple and that fast. And guess what? 40 years later, the Ansaris are still happily married. My wife also has a coworker who had an arranged marriage in India. 90% of marriages in India are arranged marriages. It might sound terrible to a lot of you. However, their divorce rate, 1%. I'll say that again. Like I said, I got stats today. In India, 90% of marriages are arranged. Divorce rate, 1%. People are staying married. It's working. What they're doing is working. And it's not like totally random. It's not like they just take a guy and a girl from any background, any religion, any demographic, and put them together and say, there you go. Enjoy holy matrimony for eternity. They do try to align these marriages. And it's the parents who arrange them. So the parents know their kids. Maybe they know somebody else in the community. Hindus with Hindus, Muslims with Muslims, Sikhs with Sikhs, and it works. The two stories I've read that have not worked are pretty damn funny as well. There was one story about a woman who met her future husband in India and immediately wanted to test him, test his intelligence. And she asked him a math question. I honestly think it was an easy math question. Like what is 15 plus six? And the guy said, that is 17. And she said, Oh hell no. And she refused to marry him based on a math question that he got wrong. Okay. So there's some criteria that when these people show up, they're still independent enough to feel it out a little bit, but in India it's proven that it works. So you're born and raised not to really question it in America. Think about what we've got going on in America, 40, 50% divorce rate. Most of us know at least three, four, five, six people that have been divorced. When I was growing up, my circle of friends, 90% of us, okay, that's not a researched statistic, but almost 100% of my group of friends has divorced parents. That was the norm. If I ever saw a happily married couple, a family that functioned properly, that was a rare sight. We all came from divorce. My current group of friends, I have about six or seven friends that have been divorced already. We're in our 30s right now. But I'm not saying it like it's so bizarre or outrageous. It's America. This is the way. There's a lot of reasons why. But Americans are under this mindset that we are searching for perfection, a soulmate. We watch a lot of movies. When we're kids, we learn about princes and princesses and how it's all happily ever after. Roll the credits. But it's not. Of course it's not. But that way of thinking sticks with us. So the way people date nowadays, 38% of single people in America are online dating. Shit. do I have stats. 38% of single Americans try to find their partners online. That process, I've done it. That process means you get to filter out everybody until you can measure what you want. I mean, really filter it down. So you could type in the ages, I'm looking for somebody 28 to 33, within 10 miles of me, uh, they could be spiritual but not religious, I want their body to be athletic and toned, you click all of these things, you could click hair color I believe, you can click what you want their education to be, you want to marry somebody that has a masters, click that box, sounds like it would really work right, and it does work for a lot of people, but it gets people so hopeful that once you've, Fill out all the filters and you click all the boxes that you're just going to get a stream of great matches for you. And it might get you a lot of dates. Some of those dates might be shitty. Some of those dates might be awful and become funny stories later in life. But I think we know online dating could be maddening for people because you filter it down so specifically that you go, This is exactly when I close my eyes what my wife or what my husband should look like. Thank you, website. Thank you so much. Perfect website for ordering me the right soulmate. And maybe that's the problem right there. Once you feel like you filtered it down and hey, this person checks all the boxes, then you're in a rush to the altar. But maybe not. Maybe there's no rush. I kind of see people getting married later in life nowadays. That's a good thing, right? At least you think it sounds like a good thing. Back in the day, if you heard somebody got married in their early 20s, that was normal. Today, if I heard that someone got married at age 23, 24, I'd be worried. i go, oof, you sure? Don't you want to live it up? And Aziz's book talks about all the stats. If you feel like I've given you some stats today, his book is just all stats and pie graphs and bar graphs and charts. And it's just a bunch of minutia. And by page 70, 80, I was like, all right, enough. And then I just picked it up again recently And I had to finish it, had to get to the end, and it remained boring. It remained pretty bad. But it's also now kind of funny, right, that Aziz wrote this whole book about dating and modern romance. Not to say he's an expert, just he's very interested in it. And the last time we saw his name in the news, it was for some weird reasons. I actually have trouble talking about that story because I feel like I don't know the details. I don't want to judge him. But the details that did come out makes it look like there was a pretty awkward sexual experience where he made a woman uncomfortable. So I don't think people are viewing Aziz Ansari as a rapist, of course, but he's laying low. I wonder what his life has become. Because it's kind of his shtick, right? Isn't that a lot of his act? Dating? His show Master of None, which is okay. B- on Netflix. It's about dating, exploring the world of love. He likes talking about it. He likes writing about it. He likes discussing it. He likes making jokes about it. And now after that scandalous, controversial story, I wonder what his act becomes. I wonder when he reemerges and turns it all into comedy, because isn't that what's going to happen? Just like Louis C.K. His act was all about masturbation. And then all of a sudden you read the story that, hey, Louis C.K. is in trouble for masturbation in front of people. I assume it should be the least surprising story of the year, but still, I guess people get shocked. (gasps) Really? The comedian is actually living what he was talking about? All right, the leaf blowing outside of this window right now is actually making my brain melt. I didn't say literally, but it's actually feeling like I can't generate thoughts anymore because the non-stop fucking leaf blowing and lawn mowing. This is called a first world problem, right? I'm trying to do my podcast and they won't stop manicuring the grounds around me. This is what renting is, though. This is where that money's going to. This is the maintenance that I don't have to do because I'm not a homeowner yet. I want to be a homeowner. I plan to be a homeowner. But once I am, I got to do the leaf blowing. I got to do the lawn mowing. I'm not sure I want to. What's the stage between renting and home buying? Is there imprisonment? Is that what I need? Oh, yeah. The other story I heard about arranged marriages. This is a good one. I once heard or I read, who knows, but that there was an arranged marriage in India And when the bride got there, I don't even think she met the guy, maybe met him once. They don't do a lot of courtship. In India, they have a system, okay? You meet the person maybe once and then, boom, get into that commitment. Get into that life. Start making kids. It works. But that the lady arrived at her own wedding and the groom, her fiance, was so drunk. He was so hammered, destroyed, blacked out, that she was thinking, nope this won't work. However, she was already in her wedding dress. The family was there. They had a catered event. So she's like, yeah, you know something, I'll marry his brother. And she did. The brother was sober. He was probably the best man. And he just stepped into the role of groom. I love that story. It's the opposite of how I am. I wish I could roll with the punches. Oh yeah. Something went wrong in that moment. Why don't you just try the alternative? Oh yeah. The guy you're about to marry, he's too sloppy. He's too drunk. he just marry his brother. And she's like, all right. And the brother, they just point to him and he's like, okay, I'm in. I bet they're still married and happy. 1% divorce rate in India. They're doing it well. Do we have any arranged marriages in America? Are there any parents out there who talk to other parents and go, we're going to make this happen? Our kids have no choice. We all love the idea of having choices, right? It feels like freedom, feels like democracy. It feels very patriotic and American to say, I make my own choices. But some people, I guarantee some people would be relieved if they knew that their mate was already selected. How much stress would that save? How many people are experiencing stress right now looking for their mate? What if you didn't even have to deal with that process at all? A lot of my friends who are still single, I want to play matchmaker. I want to find them the great mate that they'll have happy lives with. Too much pressure, too much damn pressure to find what appears to be the right fit. I think arranged marriages are the right way. I've completely changed my mind. After Aziz's parents, my wife's coworker story, reading about the stats, this is the right way. You can't disagree with math, folks. You can't disagree. I've been crunching numbers. It works. All right, let me transition out of that nonsense. There is a Netflix documentary series on called Wild Wild Country. I'm not going to talk about it right now. I think in a future podcast, once I finish the series, I'm going to talk about it. And it might be the only podcast I ever do that only has one topic. Most of these here-we-go-half-hours have way too many topics. I jump around, stepping stone, jump around, stepping stone, tangent here, go off on this topic there. It's kind of the way the old pinball brain works. However, Wild Wild Country, and if you've never seen it, I'm not even sure I recommend it because it's too consuming. I can't remember ever seeing a documentary like this where it's too bizarre. It's too weird. It's too insane where my brain can't actually wrap around it as truth. It seems like fiction and they have all the footage. They have all the interviews, all the news reports, all the newspaper clippings. They have it all. The Duplass brothers, they produced it and they did a marvelous job one of the greatest productions of a documentary I've ever seen. It probably took them years and years and years to get it all together. It's six one hour episodes. So I've dedicated five hours of my life. I still have the final episode to watch, which I'll talk about in the next one, but it is so out there. What happened? And it's about cults folks. Okay. It's about indoctrination, brainwashing. It's about America. It's about India. It actually connects to what I've just been ranting about So if you want to understand anything that I'm talking about in the next podcast, maybe you should check out an episode of Wild Wild Country on Netflix if you have Netflix. And I think Netflix is now something that we should all have, and maybe cable TV and Xfinity and all that stupid stuff we don't need anymore. A thousand channels, I probably watch two shows, whereas Netflix seems to have everything I need, except for live sports. Yet one of the channels that I do need on the old cable is HBO. And I realized something about the formula of an HBO show. The theme song is important. I've always loved theme songs. There's a place in my psyche, there's a place in my soul that just wraps around theme songs. I've always loved them. From the earliest shows that I used to watch, I used to memorize the lyrics and sing them, and I still love them, and I could still sing them. But just a little minute of music to get you pumped for the show you're watching, and you start to associate that song with the show... No channel has ever done it better than HBO. No channel. And they have the formula, right? They give you a minute of the show, right? They give you a little minute, a little precursor to the drama, and then boom, right into the song. And there you get to see the actors' names, the opening credits, and whatever montage or whatever footage they're showing you is captivating. It's like the production of an HBO show is so exquisite. Think about The Sopranos. If I say these shows and you've watched them, you immediately know the song, In your head, Entourage, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Silicon Valley. There's a long list. I'm forgetting a bunch of good HBO shows, but I'm going to play one right now from my phone because it is one of the best I've ever heard. It's a total instrumental. It almost sounds like what I was asking Micah Julius for my good buddy, my musical composer for this podcast, the song you hear coming in and out of Here We Go. That's Micah's creation. I think he made it in a day or two. Very quick, very talented man out in Astoria, Queens. But I said, give me a little something funky. Give me something with a little hip hop. Give me something maybe with a little guitar, little piano, something maybe that sounds like The Roots or The Far Side or A Tribe Called Quest or all these old hip hop groups that I love. And what Micah produced, I said, yep, that's good. That'll do. But listen to this. I'm going to play the theme song to the show Succession on HBO, which is really good now. I think the first four episodes couldn't stand. I still hate everybody on the show, but at least the drama has picked up. The Vote of No Confidence. Did you see that episode? I was sweating, folks. I was sweating. Literally. All right, let me find it on YouTube. All right, here we go. How perfect is this song? So they show you the minute of drama to get you ready. And then this hits. So good. And the whole time they're just showing these rich kids growing up on their estate, eating at their fancy tables, riding elephants. This must sound very weird if you've never heard of the show or seen the show, but theme songs are big in my life. I wouldn't mind having a theme song just when I walked around like I'm going to get you sucka. It's a big deal. When I was a wrestling fan, whatever the wrestlers would come into the ring to even baseball players. Now they get to pick their entrance music before they get in the box. You go to an NBA game, there are songs that just play and play and play throughout the game, but when the team comes onto the court, the music accompanies the players, and it just works. just works harmoniously. Family Ties would not even be Family Ties without Sha-la-la-la. If I say Seinfeld, you think about that bass line. If I say Three's Company, you wonder who's going to knock on your door. If I say Who's the Boss, Tony Maselli... What are you thinking? All right, I'll play it. There we go. life and what's your life? So take a chance and face the wind. An open road and a road that's hit. Wrang the life around the bend. There were times I lost a dream or two. Lost a dream or two? Now it's getting emotional in here. Don't make me misty-eyed, Tony Danza. All right, that'll do it today. I have nothing more to ramble about. Nada. If you want to follow along with this, check it out on Twitter at jrosenberg957. You could get that book, Suddenly Facing Reality, on Amazon, a little summer reading. Get into a novel. Get into some fiction. Didn't even talk about Hillbilly Elegy. I want to talk about that at some point. And also, I have confirmed a booking I have confirmed an interview for this show, Mr. Josh Friday, the mayor of Novato. We're not just going to talk about the policies of Novato. Don't worry. We're getting into the big issues on planet Earth. So Josh will be joining me sometime in the next week or two. But uh, leave a review on iTunes if you like. All right. Thanks for tuning in. Episode 25 is in the books. I'll talk to you soon.